Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast from the historic Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national publicly funded nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current system that leaves more than 100 million of us in medical debt. And we're a longstanding community partner with WFMP 1065 Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed here on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the station. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. If you miss a show, you can go to the archives here at forwardradio.org slash single-payer. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us at forwardradio.org, and we've got a special fundraiser coming up. You want to save the date for Thursday, September the 15th. It's Give for Good again. You can go to forward, I'm sorry, you can go to giveforgood.org and search for Forward Radio to help us get matching funds from the Louisville Community Foundation. That's Thursday, September the 15th. We've got Drs. Mike Flynn and Gene Shively. They're back here in the studio Zooming in their guest. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn, retired surgeon from Division of uh, Surgical Oncology, Division of Surgical Oncology at the University of Louisville. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments or views that I might express represent the view, my personal views, and do not represent the views of either the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. I'm Eugene Shively, a retired general surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. My views do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital, nor the Department of Surgery and University of Louisville. Uh, we have a special guest today, uh, Bill Cheadle. Uh, Bill is a professor of surgery in the Division of General Surgery at the University of Louisville. He went to medical school at the University of California at Irvine, uh, did a residency uh, here in the surgery department, uh, did three fellowships, one at the Price Institute on Surgical Research, one at the University of Dundee in Scotland, and did American Cancer uh, Society Fellowship. He was the director of the Surgical Residency Training Program for many years and for many years worked in an assortment of different roles at the Louisville VA Hospital. So the topics that we're going to discuss today uh, involve uh, how surgeons are trained, and we're going to discuss issues about working uh, in, in the VA medical system. So, Bill, welcome, and thank you for your willingness to come on and discuss these issues with us. As we've done with our previous guests, we're going to give you an opportunity uh, to make whatever comments about either or both uh, of these topics for as long as you want, and then Gene will begin with the questioning. So the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Michael. It's great uh, to be here, and I'm uh, just a good old general surgeon, basically practicing in an academic environment. I still do trauma call and take ER call at downtown uh, Norton Hospital. Uh, you know, they to go back to medical school, I, I'm a native Californian in, uh, in medical school. Uh, we all determine what uh, choice we want to select sort of during our junior and very early in the senior year, and then go through lots of interviews and eventually a match, which is a giant computer program there where 
virtually every medical student uh, in this country matches into residencies and a whole host of specialties. And my advisors uh, uh, gave me a list of 15 residencies all over the country. And interestingly enough, the last one I came to was the University of Louisville, uh, probably in late 1979. And I rotated, uh, I spent a whole day with a trauma team at, uh, at General Hospital and uh, just uh, thought they were fantastic uh, residents and, and ended up matching here and doing my training here. And then very early on, I sort of took on the duties of the program director because I've always... In, in, felt strongly about proper resident training and surgery. And so I did that for two and a half decades, basically. And uh, Louisville has an excellent uh, training program. Uh, it has uh, a volume of cases that are really fantastic and a breadth of cases that are also fantastic. We have five different teaching hospitals, and then we have rural rotations in Madisonville and uh, Owensboro, uh, Kentucky. Now, normally a surgery residency lasts five years. That's the quickest you can get through. And in our particular program, and in many programs, there's there's options to do additional training in, in uh, science, uh, public health, business and other things, and we have those opportunities here. But basic general surgery training is five years, and then uh, if you want to go straight into uh, general surgery after that, uh, you can, or one can take a fellowship, and there are a whole host of fellowships uh, from minimally invasive surgery, trauma critical care, uh, surgical oncology, head and neck surgery, um, uh, vascular surgery, colorectal surgery. And so those fellowships require usually two years of additional training, one to two years of additional training. And then you actually go out in the real world and, and, and get a job. So when I finished up a residency here, uh, luckily I was offered a job by Drs. Polk and Richardson. And then Dr. Garrison, who was chief of surgery at the VA said, hey, you should take time at the VA because it's an excellent place to train residents and do lots of difficult and interesting cases. But more importantly, there's a real research opportunity at the VA and it still exists today. And so I uh, took a six-eighths appointment at the VA and then fairly short order became uh, chief of research there and then had a research laboratory at the VA along with Dr. Garrison uh, uh, for almost 30 years. And so I, I chose the VA because, A, I love take care of veterans, and B, the clinical opportunities were excellent. But probably most importantly was the research opportunities uh, at the VA, which still exist today. And, and uh, you go back to World War II, um, when all the GIs came back, uh, the, the VA was overwhelmed. And so General Paul Hawley uh, uh, got through a bill that tied the VA to the medical schools of this country uh, forevermore. And that gave them instantly <laughs> a lot more physicians. And uh, so that's carried on today. And of course, the VA research program started shortly thereafter. And it's been uh, outstanding over the years and still is, is today. So that's a little short blurb for me. <laughs> All right, Gene, you want to fire away on the first question? Well, uh, I'm glad you <clears throat> emphasized how long it takes to become a surgeon because I think most people don't know that. What, what do most... Uh, uh, residents after they finish uh, their five years, what do most of them do and how do they end up in a particular type of practice? Well, it really depends on the residency itself. If you get into very uh, high-powered research universities, many of those go on to fellowships and academia. And, then, and there's over 250 surgery residencies in this country. 
The community-based programs tend to train more general surgeons, but still many of those go on fellowship. Overall, uh, I think 70% of, of residents in general surgery programs go on to take a fellowship. Now, they may practice uh, in general surgery and that particular fellowship. It just sort of depends. So it's, it's, it's at least five years after medical school and sometimes even seven or eight. Now, how, where, are, are there a shortage of surgeons and uh, particularly in certain areas in the United States? Yes, that's been well uh, researched and there's no question, particularly in rural areas, there's a shortage of general surgeons. And, and certainly after one finishes their five years of training, there's multiple job opportunities uh, all over the country. It's a little tighter in, say, New York City or Chicago, but there's certainly multiple opportunities. And we've had uh, uh, residents uh, match here and or uh, get jobs here in Louisville or other parts of Kentucky or other parts of this country. Uh, Bill, now I want to ask you a question about uh, surgical residencies and fellowships. But before I do that, uh, maybe you could share with our listeners uh, a, a personal item uh, if i remember correctly uh you were a candidate to go to the olympics and <laughs> that was, uh, if i remember correctly wasn't that when the russians invaded afghanistan and then jimmy carter pulled everybody out so tell us a little bit about that and tell us what you were going to do if you did go to the olympics well i really wasn't that good but thank you for uh thank you for uh, saying that but I ran the 400 hurdles and I still run the hurdles. I've been doing it for over 55 years, but I had several friends and teammates that uh, were on the Olympic team and did not uh, go because of that. And it was a real, uh, very uh, sad thing, <laughs> but uh, I, I enjoyed uh, running a lot and still do. And uh, I came within a 10th of a second of making the standard of the Olympics and, and, uh, didn't quite make it. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> listen, uh, no, you're still running. I, I, I stopped running about 10 years ago. <laughs> I walked, but uh, my old knees, uh, they don't do so well. Well, listen, let me, I want to get your comment about something. I, I, uh, I did a surgical residency at the University of Maryland, and which was many ways was very similar to the U of L surgical residency. And I went down to MD Anderson, and uh, one of the things I learned down there was um, they were fairly skeptical about getting uh, uh, residents that were trained in a lot of these uh, uh, high-end residency programs because they often didn't operate very well and could take care of patients. The people who came, because I know uh, the L. I mean, we, it was the same, same way with the University of Maryland for a while. You know, I, I was in the operating room uh, at night and if something bad happened, um, I had to figure out how to, you know, straighten it out. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in some of these uh, very, very upscale programs, uh, I mean, the resident is, is, you know, three or four people away from the the operating table because there's so many fellows and other folks around. Um, uh, and I, I remember that, uh, you know, the number of people that went from here down to MD Anderson and they appreciated uh, residents that were trained to manage things themselves, who could operate, and who could take care of patients. So uh, maybe you could give me a few comments about how that fits into um, the, the way residents from uh, you know, our program here end up in fellowships. Yeah, I mean, what you're bringing up the issue of autonomy essentially. And, and as you know, residency is a graded experience with increasing responsibility over time. And just to sort of nutshell it for the public, the first two years are basically out of the operating room, learning how to take care of very, very sick, well, routine patients as, as well as very, very sick, ill patients in the intensive care unit. You still do get in the operating room. 
but really it's your third year where you make sort of a transition from uh, out of the operating room care to in the operating room care. And then your fourth and fifth years, you're a chief resident essentially, and, and you are responsible for the running of the entire service as well as being in the operating room doing those cases. And many, many years ago, uh, Dr. Lou Flint, uh, very interesting move of getting our chief residents credentialed to operate independently, both at the old general hospital as well as the VA. And that essentially still holds true to till today. There's a lot more supervision when you and I were in residency than there is now than there was then. So I really wanted to be, to feel the same way the MD Anderson feel people feel. I really wanted to be trained well so I could come out and be able to handle most things. And that's what I liked about the, the Louisville program. And several of the programs across the country are similar, and, and many of them uh, uh, have rotations in public hospitals uh, and do a lot of care for the uninsured and the poor and destitute and, and where there's lots of trauma. And so that helps build one's confidence over time uh, to be able to handle things. And I, I've, we've had people going to fellowship at MD Anderson for 40 years and they will jump right in and do the big cases. And I think uh, that's what we want out of our residents. So we want them to, to be prepared to go into general surgery or take a fellowship, but still prepared to enter general surgery so they can jump into the fellowship and do the more advanced cases right away. Well, the willingness of, of a place like MD Anderson to accept programs, uh, or residents trained in this program, I will always felt was a real compliment to the program because it provided that, that, same, that same kind of capability that they've been looking for over, over the years. Yes. Well, I, I want to discuss uh, finances here for just a minute. Last week, the president uh, signed an order that decreasing and forgiving loans on uh, students. Could you just uh, give us a brief explanation of uh, what the average student loan for a medical student is and how that affects residency and uh, toward the end of their career, how that affects their decisions on what to do. Yes, well, all this started 40 years ago. When, when I was in college, I, medical school, I paid $250 a quarter for, for tuition, and uh, we put our son through uh, college and medical school, and I can tell you substantially more. Luckily, he won't have any debt, but the average student probably has two hundred to 250000 in debt. And uh, so that's a, that's, that's a real thing. Now, obviously doctors, uh, you know, make pretty good, <clears throat> have a pretty good lifestyle and make a, a decent income. And in general surgery, for example, um, uh, many hospitals, particularly in the rural areas will, will assist uh, the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> newly hired uh, surgeon with malpractice insurance, signing bonus, and helping them pay down their student loans. And so in surgery, I think that's a big plus where there's in other specialties, I'm not sure if that's really true, but certainly there is substantial debt that takes many, many years to, to pay off depending on what kind of specialty you're in. If you're in a specialty that pays a, a, a pretty high, then that debt can be erased in a, just a few years. If you're in a specialty that doesn't pay high, I, I'm sure people can retire in some sort of debt. So, so uh, that's a real issue now. Well, Bill, let me, let me ask you a similar, but different question. What are your thoughts about uh, the, re the recognition that large numbers of surgeons, let's just talk about Louisville, I'm not sure about other places, but I'm pretty sure it's the same. Uh, in practice in Louisville uh, are associated with 
um, usually some health system or hospital system. I came to Louisville in the early 70s and, and everybody was in, I mean, there were, there were all kinds of people in independent practices. Yes. And, um, I mean, I went through the, the hierarchy of, 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 the, of the medical staff in, in one of the local hospitals. And, uh, you know, the year I was president of the medical staff, you know, when we talked to uh, the hospital administration, um, they listened to us. Yeah, I mean, we we had a lot of influence in terms of uh, what what went on in the operating room, uh, an assortment of, of, of activities focused on patient care. Uh, as time went on, uh, and I, you know, before I retired, uh, the, the the chief of surgery or the president of the medical staff at one of the same hospital which is now a hospital or a health system, gets a check from the system. Now, you know, they work in an office and they collect the money and I don't know all the details because I was never in that environment. But that relationship between the, the, a physician or surgeon working in an independent practice versus working or getting a paycheck from the hospital system or healthcare system. I, I'm just kind of curious about your views about that. I know you spent most of your career at the VA, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I'm just wondering what your, your thoughts are about how the clinical practice of surgery has changed over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, it's it's changed dramatically, and and most of our graduates are, are end up employed in healthcare systems or by hospitals. And Louisville, it's it's basically Baptist East Norton or or the university or the VA for that matter. And 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 that's basically what what's going on. And that's due to a whole host of reasons. But but uh, number one, hospital reimbursements have risen over the years, <clears throat> and if they do well, like like the organizations have in Louisville, uh, they they certainly can afford to hire physicians of all types and do so. And the so and then number two, the electronic medical record for documentation is complicated things. Dealing with insurance companies, um, coding and billing, all uh, have become more complicated and. And uh, so I think individual surgeons have themselves mostly moved into an agreement with a hospital. One of my chief residents who's still working, uh, it just did that two years ago. So you have a little bit less control, but a lot less hassle dealing with the business of medicine. And the reimbursements, I, I think the, the so-called paychecks aren't a whole lot different uh, in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and there's incentives for, for productivity and things like that. So no question about it, uh, um, hospital systems in this state have certainly purchased most of the hospitals in the state and they're in, uh, in, uh, in various city, uh, towns together. For example, I have a friend down in Caneyville and the their local hospital is, is Twin Lakes and Litchfield, which is now Owensboro Health. And Madisonville is now operated by Baptist. And, and across the river is operated by Baptist over at uh, uh, Floyd Memorial. So the, the reason individual physicians have done that is, is really to, to focus more on their practice and less on the business of medicine. No, which no, has become increasingly complex. One of, the, one of the concerns that I had about those kinds of arrangements uh, was that, uh, let's say, hospital system A uh, would, uh, would tend to encourage um, uh, internal referrals. Uh, now, I, before I retired, I did a lot of parathyroid surgery, and it's not something that the average general surgeon or the average otolaryngologist, these are the people who are even plastic surgeons, I don't think they do very many, 
did very much. And uh, one of the things I experienced during one of these uh, <laughs> one of these periods that I I had a referral source from a, another system, and I noticed that these referrals were, were were sort of slowing down. And then there was a period of time where I started seeing um, uh, cases that probably hadn't been handled very well, and then the referrals came back. And so this uh, this sort of one of the issues that always concerned me about this, you know people working in one system versus the other is the influence that that system has on the way they practice. And the one example that I just mentioned was uh, this encouragement to refer internally, often to people who um, may not have a lot of experience doing a particular procedure or dealing with a, a condition but trying to keep it within the system. Yeah, there's no question. It's almost exclusive. If you're in that system, uh, the primary care or internal medicine docs are gonna to refer to the surgeons in that system and not outside unless it's a very special case. For example, trauma all comes downtown to us at the University of Louisville. And even in the Norton healthcare system, uh, we we pretty much do all the acute care surgery for downtown Louisville, whether it's University Jewish or Norton's. And and so those patients oftentimes come down to us uh, as well. So you're, you are correct. The physicians in a system all tend to deal with each other unless it's very complicated and then goes outside. One of the things that I wanted to discuss is that uh, America's having big problems with rural health care, and it's pretty well proven that a hospital in rural America really can't make it without a general surgeon. Has there been any uh, approach by the, the surgeons, the American College of Surgeons, to try to get more surgeons in rural health? And, uh, of course, they have to have a little different training they have to be able to do more procedures, have to be able to do endoscopy, and in some places they even have to be able to do C-section. How uh, has University of Louisville and other surgery programs tried to address this problem? Well, we've always addressed it, Gene, as you know, you train with us too, and, and uh, we've always felt a strong <clears throat> training in general surgery is, is paramount and then uh, if additional training is desired, you can go on. And so we put, and as well as the University of Kentucky, we put many, many surgeons all over Kentucky in rural areas. And boy, there's, there's incentives in general surgery to go into rural areas. As I mentioned before, signing bonuses, stipends during residency, paying your malpractice insurance, paying off student loans uh, and such <clears throat> because of the importance of general uh, surgeons to a hospital. So we, I think the key to that is broad-based training, limiting the number of fellowships. We, we do have a, a critical care fellowship, two of them, but that doesn't interact or impede with our residents. It actually helps a fellowship in pediatric surgery in which we sort of split call with a general surgery resident, the pediatric fellow, the surgical oncology fellow, where they would work with one faculty person, the, the chief resident works with the rest, so there's split responsibilities. So I think you have to limit the number of fellowships. And we've always felt strongly here and at the University of Kentucky that it's very important to train a certain number of general surgeons uh, to do this. And so <clears throat> we, uh, neither program has a mandatory research year. Uh, we, we do have kids that go on and, and take get a doctorate and take three years to do it and then move on to a high-powered academic program like MD Anderson. But we also have uh, people like uh, one of our recent graduates has joined uh, one of our former graduates who started out with me in Madisonville. So we're, we're very proud of that. We've served several in Danville, Glasgow, all over uh, Kentucky. And so I think the key is to emphasize general surgery. <clears throat> 
unfortunately, uh, in academics, there's not many general surgeons left. <laughs> I'm probably the only one here at the University of Louisville. But the public needs general surgeons more than they need the specialist in, in a way. And so I think it's a, a matter of individual training philosophies at that particular program. One of the things that really helped me in rural Kentucky was that I had a close relationship with the Department of Surgery at UofL, and I could talk to them. Or we had a very difficult patient that we couldn't take care of. They were always glad to help out and uh, take the patient. And I think a close relationship like that uh, was was extremely helpful to me. Yes, we're very proud of that. And, and uh, we've even had a trauma outreach program where we go to all uh, hospitals that see trauma and, and transfer them and how, how they could do the initial care uh, a little better. And then we've always had a, a pretty good, darn good relationship with our residents as they go into practice. And so many of them will call all sorts of faculty uh, uh, for advice. And then within the area of Kentucky, uh, we we uh, certainly will accept any patient. We, we and, and same with the University of Kentucky, I don't think we ever turn somebody down uh, because we have enough faculty to handle it and we have enough residents to handle it. And we, we believe in, in, in doing that. There's certain patients that are, are so difficult to take care of out in, in, in rural areas, it would just overwhelm the individual surgeon there. We, we understand that. We're happy to uh, help out. And so I think, uh, and, and then we get uh, patients that are difficult, but very good training cases for the residents. And so it's a mutual benefit uh, situation. Now, one of the major issues, at least in my opinion, with, uh, with healthcare in rural America is the fact that uh, in this country, we don't really have a healthcare system. We have a healthcare industry that is focused on extracting money from patient <laughs> care activities. Now, Australia, which has got a different system, uh, a universal health care system, they have a Department of Rural Health. The entire department is focused on providing health care for, you know, for people who live in rural Australia in the outback, and, and it, it creates an entirely, entirely different environment. So, it, it, you know, I think the University of Louisville and the University of Kentucky have done a really good job doing the sort of things that Gina alluded to, but um, we've got some issues in this country we need to address. I, I'm not gonna bring this up, but I'm gonna ask you a little bit later on what, you, what your thoughts are about uh, some other healthcare systems, but we'll, we'll just save that for a little later on in the program. <laughs> well, um, I, I think we should talk about the VA. When I was a resident, the rotation at the VA was just uh, incredible, and I learned so much there. Um, Bill, you can tell us a little bit about your experience at the VA and what you think the future of the VA is, and uh, particularly with training uh, students and residents. Yeah, the VA has just been a tremendous national resource, again, uh, following World War II and all the way up to the present time. Uh, the most successful VAs are tightly affiliated to universities and with, with high research budgets. And there's been a sort of a switch from part-time faculty to full-time faculty um, at the VA. The VA uh, would prefer... Um, fact, uh, prefer their employees, if you will, uh, to be full-time. Uh, sometimes that's a little difficult with other university and academic duties. Uh, but to me, the, the patient population was fantastic. Uh, I love taking care of the vets. I, they had lots of difficult problems to deal with. I think uh, in terms of surgery, I think uh, the VA does a very good job of taking care of veterans. I think it does a great job in preventive health care and in primary care. Uh, and, and it does that by having these uh, clinics in communities all throughout the country. Uh, and then those feed into regional hospitals. So the VA is a very good example of regional health care. 
where the primary care might be done 100 miles away. And then if you've got a, a liver transplant that needs to be done, you might be sent, you know, a couple hundred miles away and get that done and then go back home again. And so I think they've done a good job of that. The, the second thing that they've done a really good job is research. And so there's a fairly uh, generous research budget within the VA that favors clinician investigators by design. And so for me, I had a basic research lab along with Dr. Garrison. And we, gosh, we had at one time six funded surgeons, the most in the nation at the Louisville VA, which is now known as Rob Lee Rex VA, who I knew quite well. He died at 107, was a World War I veteran and volunteer there and left his fortune to the VA and hence is named after it. So it's, it's been a great area for teaching and, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of good research is, is, has been done there uh, about a whole host of things. I was president of the Association of VA Surgeons 15 years ago or so, and my presidential address dealt with research in the VA, and it's, it's a spectacular record, and it gives a clinician an opportunity to get funding for their own research and keep it relevant to, to what, what we're seeing clinically. Now, uh, unfortunately, as our generation dies off, which is the Vietnam uh, veteran generation, I think the, the amount of veterans are going to contract significantly. Uh, we'll be, there was sort of a hiatus until the Gulf War from 1975 to 1991. And, and the number of veterans of, of the Gulf Wars is certainly way, way smaller than uh, World War II, uh, Korea, and Vietnam. So I see it sort of uh, contracting. Uh, the, the, the new Louisville VA is, is being built right as we're, we're talking right now. And so that's sort of an exciting uh, proposition. The, the old VA here uh, has been around for 52 or three years and been renovated numerous times and actually is a, is a nice place. I enjoyed working there, had a nice office and that sort of thing. So no, uh, I agree with you that the, the VA, the, the VA health system is a great national resource. What's your thought about all of these attempts at privatization from outsourcing, you know, one type of healthcare to to private uh, practice or some other some other option? I mean, there's a lot of this floating around in some of the political uh, corners of this country. Yeah, I mean, it is a political issue and, and no question that there there are cases that are outsourced now and the veterans have choices. I think they have three choices between TRICARE, VA, and, and if they have private insurance. And of course, the majority of veterans over the years have had, uh, you know, sought care in the private sector. And, you know, the VA had to respond to that. And that was done way back in the 80s when Shipper Curry really looked at, at, at health care. He was mandated by Congress to, to, to look at health care by the VA. It did so and came up uh, with a very nice system to, to determine what mortality rates ought to be uh, for various surgeries. And then they kept records of them. And, and, you know, and uh, if your mortality ratio or complication ratio was high, you were investigated. Usually the cause was found and healthcare was improved and you can show mortality dropped over that 20 year period in the nineties. And so uh, that's been very good. However, uh, sometimes it's hard to attract uh, physicians to the VA for various reasons. And if you don't have physicians that actually can do uh, what's being done or the staff or the resources to be done, uh, then, then that's been, been, uh, uh, sent out privately from certain VAs. Uh, many VAs are, 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 the VAs are all, all uh, guided in as to primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary care uh, facilities. And, and I think ours is a tertiary care, whereas those that do open heart surgery and transplants are, are quaternary care. And those VAs usually off, offer everything, whereas the other VAs uh, oftentimes don't, and the care might be better served by, by or more efficiently by, by uh, 
keeping them home uh, for private care. So it's a complicated issue and a complex one and probably depends on the individual VA. Well, let me share my personal experience with the VA with you just to get your comments about it. I spent 20 years in the Navy. I was two years on active duty and 18 years in the reserve. And after I retired and this COVID pandemic came up, as you know, my wife, Karen, was working. She's retired now, but she was working at the, in the operating room at the VA and kept pestering me about getting getting into the VA so that I could get my COVID, my COVID <laughs> shots. So I, I, tr- I applied and I, I was I went through some kind of financial analysis and they told me and I was retired. <clears throat> I made too much money to be you'd be in the VA system, which was fine. I, I, that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't hurt my feelings at all because I don't really think I need it. But it was interesting uh, that I didn't even know that existed. Uh, there was apparently there's some kind of financial. I don't remember the details. It was no, it's still it's still there. It's means testing, and and the VA is there primarily for those that can't afford care health wise or yes, just choose to do it. Too. I, I wasn't. I'm not complaining about it. I'm yeah. Just, just but I tell you, if you're a veteran, it's the greatest catastrophic health policy you'll ever have. So all of my friends that are veterans, I've got them into the VA. And whether they qualify or not, if you come in as an emergency, <laughs> they'll take care of you. And and so that that's that's important. So I think it's important to get every veteran at least accessed into the system. And for a long time, their budget was based on how many veterans were in the hospital at any given time period or in their system. And they realized that. And so they they've one of the big complaints back when I was a resident is, is the clinics taking too long and appointments taking too long. So they've they've worked very, very hard on that at all VAs. And, and I've got my best friends, a, a veteran, Vietnam veteran. He seeks his care at the VA and the private sector. He does both for various things. And, and uh, he's always been pretty happy that he, he sees someone pretty quickly when the appointment has been made. So they become much more efficient at, 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 in the clinics, in particularly primary care, and particularly preventive medicine. Well, I know a lot of veterans who <clears throat> get their primary care locally, but they were able to get their medicine from the VA uh, essentially free, and that's a, a great benefit to them. The other area, I, if I just could have mentioned, is is addiction medicine and, and psychiatric care particularly for those uh, veterans that have had uh, difficult times during their service and afterwards, uh, for example, post-traumatic stress syndrome and that sort of thing. And I think the VA by far and above does a much, much better job with those particular illnesses than anywhere in the private sector. And so I I think uh, it's very, very important to keep that aspect within the VA system. And they've got... uh, even rehabilitation, detox, and, and a whole host of things at all, most all the VAs, and they're, and they're very, very good at that. Well, we, we've got a new VA being built uh, here in Louisville. Um, are we going to continue the close affiliation with the university? And uh, being uh, uh, somewhat a far distance from the downtown medical center, is that going to affect any of the uh, teaching and the care of veterans? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's a little bit longer to drive out there. But as I said before, the VA would prefer full-time people and and, uh, the salaries and benefits are are very good. And uh, it's just, do you want to work in that environment or not? And I think the students will continue to go there. I think the teaching will will continue. Um, The veterans did not want a VA downtown, and I can understand that they don't want to negotiate in a down, try to try to get to the VA in a downtown complex urban area. And our present area is right off I-71. You exit Zorn Avenue, you're right there. the The new VA will be a little bit more traffic going into the area, but there's going to be a new off ramp from seven from 264 
to it. So it's really freeway close uh, for the veterans. And, and uh, what they wanted to do, at least because I was involved in planning of this when I was with the VA, uh, they want to bring all the veteran services there uh, out of downtown Louisville. So not only VHA, but VBA. So all the veteran stuff. So all that will be self-contained in that area. Well, Bill, let me, uh, I, I've mentioned this a little bit earlier. Let's kind of switch horses a little bit and, and let me ask you a question that uh, uh, with the background of both surgical training and the VA, uh, you know, we, we're sponsored by an organization called Kentuckians for Single Payer. We're promoting Medicare for all. Um, what are your thoughts about how surgical training might be affected or would be affected at all if we had a system where we had a single payer system like Canada, Australia, and every other first world country. Every other developed <laughs> country. Having, well, you know, interesting. A thousand for-profit health insurance companies, each with 35 different plans. Right. How, how would the not so much to practice, but I'm kind of interested in what your thoughts would be about at whether it would affect it at all, the surgical training or, or how surgical. You know, yeah, how I, I, I don't know, obviously. Uh, however, surgical training is sort of a single payer system right now. It's funded by Part A Medicare. Yeah. And what, but but, but well, almost every medical school in the country is well over the cap that was passed during the Clinton administration. And there's a big push now to expand the the residency cap because we need more doctors in this in this country uh, almost a third of the healthcare is delivered by doctors who were who graduated from foreign countries then moved here and so if you look at the medical school I, I graduated 40 over 40 years ago there were 105 medical schools there are now 140 or 142 and all the present medical schools have expanded yet the residency slots have not and so there's all kinds of individual negotiations with universities and their affiliate, not only VAs, but affiliate uh, hospitals uh, here. In, in, in Louisville alone, it would be Norton and Jewish, basically. And of course, now university owns Jewish. So um, the, it, it already is, in a way, a single payer system. And I think there would be recognition if we had such a system, that how, how important training is. And so I, I, I think the logistics of it would be a bit different, but not, not a whole lot because we're sort of in a single payer system through Part A Medicare now with, with individual arrangements with hospitals and healthcare systems to supply those residents. And hospitals now actually can profit to a certain extent if they have residents up to a certain number there's actually an incentive to help to train residents in this country well and as, as a follow-up question <clears throat> in a similar vein but a little different event explain a little bit about how the surgical training programs are funded i know money money comes from here and there some you know from billing from I know Norton's or the resident, wherever, whatever the residents rotate, I think those hospitals make some contribution to yes. either their salaries or the program. I'm not exactly, I'm not sure exactly the details of all that, but whatever you're comfortable with, maybe we could share that with our listeners. Yes, I mean, essentially, it most of the spots up to the Medicare cap are covered through Medicare, a single payer system, but every, every residency program in this country probably has special contracts with either healthcare systems or the hospitals within which they work uh, because the residents can provide a service of being in the house 24 seven. And, and so uh, it's, it's sort of done by both uh, to be honest with you. Now, one, again, a similar, or no, not a similar question, but a, a horse change. Somewhere, uh, I can't remember, it was before I retired or after I retired, um, 
some there was a, a, a quality of life survey was done for the residents of U of L. Now, I, I, it's, this is a foggy memory, the, the, the specifics of it, the timing of it, but the one thing that I remembered from that was the most negative experience in the surgical training program at UofL was the amount of time and the hassle involved in electronic health records. Now, as we both know, this is complicated, it's time consuming, and it's focused more on um, uh, billing than it is on healthcare. And I just, uh, are you have any thoughts about that? Or are you, do you remember that? that, that well, story? yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things here. Basically, the shot heard around the world was 2001 when 70 open categorical positions occurred in uh, general surgery. And we were one of them that had an opening. And that blew everybody's mind. And, and the survey was true. I, I think the residents uh, were, you know, <laughs> we residents were, were working a lot long hour, longer hours th than they are today, although I'd argue that they have more patience and more complicated today. So uh, the uh, RRC with American Board of Surgery uh, and the ACGME passed legislation to restrict duty hours of the residents. And they've been, if, uh, we, we uh, applied those um, in 2003. So it's been almost 20 years. And it was sort of funny because it, it took a while for them to, to for my, our chiefs to <laughs> send the darn interns home because they weren't used to doing it. But that culture change has been complete. And so the duty hours are a lot less longer the duty hours in the hospital, uh, there's every third night rather than every other and even even less. And I can see that the changes in the residents the next year, they just look better and they weren't taking as much. Number two, I've witnessed the evolution of the electronic medical record and it's been very interesting. The VA adopted that way before the private sector did. I was one of the super users back in the 90s. And so that has that is an electronic medical record. Then Epic came along. Then Cerner came along. Then Allscripts came along. And for a while, <laughs> in our own program, we had four different different electronic medical records. As those have evolved, they've become much more efficient. They talk to each other. We can. I can. I can sign things on my phone. Order things on my phone app. So that has slowly gotten better. And of course, with the younger generation, they are much more uh, adaptable to <laughs> uh, using the computer or your phone. So I think that has sort of changed to, to the betterment now. And, and really I can, by my phone, I can get into a, uh, a medical record and find everything I need to do with imaging and studies. The other thing has been great is the cell phones the residents can send me pictures of a wound or, or, or whole videos of CAT scans. And so the, the transmission of information now is much more efficient than when we trained. And so, but, but getting there was rough. <laughs> that transition period was rough, but it's fairly mature now. And we have good up the best medical record system at our hospitals. And so I, I think that's, sort of evolved to where the where it, where it's going to be and, and fairly efficient now do you think uh, electronic medical records are still uh costing the residents a lot of extra time that uh they could be doing something more productive like at the patient bedside or in the operating room i i don't think so gene because uh well, let me take that back. At the intern level, yes, it probably is a little bit. But again, uh, the, the, we, we've adopted some better medical records systems, and those systems have gotten more efficient, and they're used to using it now. So I don't really think so. And as you move up in the training, your third and fourth years, I would say no, it, it, it is not. It, it, uh, it, no, just warning, we're getting to the last five minutes. So okay. we're getting toward the end of the lollipop. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, um, 
the medical liability issues, I uh, I don't know if you noticed there was a there was an article in the paper uh, last week, I think, in the Courier Journal about a, a plaintiff's attorney <clears throat> who uh, uh, collapsed on the uh, during a trial in which he was. Um, I don't know if you remember this. He was he was. I'm not going to mention any names. But he was uh, the, the 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 defendant was one of our senior residents at the time. This was quite a long while ago. <laughs> this guy was he was interrogating the, uh, the the defendant, and then he had some kind of a fading spell or something he collapsed, and then the the guy who was being interrogated had to leave had to leave the witness box and come down and do first aid on this guy which I thought was a wonderful experience. I, 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 when we get finished, I'll, I'll, you know, when we're not recording, I'll tell you the name of the resident because I remember who it was. But anyhow, yeah. aside from all of that, it, it, how much of an issue is that in, in the surgical training for residents? You know, how often do they get involved in that process? Uh, uh, you know, the costs, the, the issues, um, you know, I never thought I never thought it was a major thing during my many years at the university. I'm just wondering where we are now. Yeah, I think a lot of that's due to documentation. Well, a, a lot of our teaching is documentation in the medical records, and that's an ongoing thing. As you know, we have the quality improvement conference every week, where where certain uh, bad outcomes are presented and discussed in an open fashion, and 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 we will discuss those medical legal issues. Years ago, um, the malpractice premiums went up very, very high, and and there was a collective response from the profession of medicine um, and certain states, and tort reform was passed in certain states. It's not been passed in ours because it would require an amendment to the uh, Constitution. But enough of it is so that so the premiums have gone down again, and and uh, that, that's one advantage of the, working at the VA. The your your malpractice premium was was lower, so I don't think it's in. in the, we we support our residents, and and uh, the plaintiffs' attorneys are going to go after the deepest pockets, and so um, the residents don't have the deepest pockets. And uh, I do quite a bit of expert testimony, and. Residents are involved some of the time, but 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 not the focus isn't usually on them because I think people realize that they're in training and the ultimate responsibility is the attending uh, physician. Uh, we've recently uh, had two nurses who um, were prosecuted for uh, mistakes, one in Nashville and now one in Lexington. Uh, you think that uh, this, well, we don't know if it's a trend yet, but do you think this type of behavior is going to affect uh, doctors and uh, will it affect people going into nursing and uh, medicine? I don't think so, Gene. I, I don't think it's, I mean, everybody's aware that it can happen, but it, 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 it's particularly at the nursing level, it, it's pretty unusual. Uh, it, it certainly can happen. And I've seen cases where it has, but I don't think it's dissuading anybody into medicine or nursing or healthcare in general. Uh, Bill, we're, we're down to the end here. I want to thank you very much for coming on. It was a great discussion. I learned a lot about the VA and some other aspects of surgical training, even though I was in academics for 30 years. <laughs> I wasn't in the same position you are in, in training. So thanks again, Bill. Uh, Bill, uh, Mark is going to finish us up here and we'll be gone. But hang on there. We'll talk a little bit after, after we end the recording. Thank you. Again, thanks again, Bill. Um, for more information about the different campaigns that Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare is working on, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. You can also follow the group on Twitter and Facebook. And another reminder for the special fundraising, save the date, Thursday, September 15th, Give for Good. 
go to giveforgoodlouisville.org on Thursday, September the 15th. Search for Forward Radio and help us get some matching funds from the Louisville Community Foundation. For Single Payer Radio, thanks for listening. I'm Mark McKinley.